Freeway Exit is a podcast from KPBS Public Media about the past, present, and future of San Diego's freeways. Learn the forgotten history of the San Diegans who built our freeway network and the activists who fought against them. Freeway Exit explores exciting and radical solutions for building a more sustainable and equitable San Diego. Listen and follow Freeway Exit from KPBS wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is brought to you in part by a generous supporter of the Monarch School. The mission of the Monarch School is to educate students impacted by homelessness and to help them develop hope for a future with the necessary skills and experience for personal success. Monarch has served San Diego County for 30 years, beginning as a one-room drop-in center and growing into a comprehensive K-12 school. Nearly 300 students attend school each day at their Barrio Logan campus, where they learn academic, social, emotional, and life skills. To learn more, visit monarchschools.org. This podcast is brought to you in part by a generous supporter of Make-A-Wish San Diego. Make-A-Wish San Diego grants wishes to children with life-threatening medical conditions to enrich the human experience with hope, strength, and joy. A wish experience can be a game-changer for a child dealing with a critical illness and has a positive impact on everyone involved. Wish kids, volunteers, donors, sponsors, medical professionals, and communities. Make-A-Wish San Diego just celebrated the granting of its milestone 4,000th wish and is now focused on granting the next 4,000. To help more kids in our community experience the life-changing power of a wish, please visit www.sandiego.wish.org backslash 4,000. I was at a breakfast meeting, which, thank God, because you usually would have been there at 7.30. Um, I got a call from one of the employees that tried to go to work and saw, you know, a billion police cars and a helicopter and said, we're being raided. From Voice of San Diego, this is I Made It in San Diego, a podcast about the stories behind the region's businesses, the big and the small, and the people who made them what they are. There is a green rush going on in California. It is legal to possess a small amount of marijuana in California now, and you can grow your own stuff. But in coming months, California will begin regulating the legal sale, manufacture, and distribution of the drug. At least, it will be legal according to the state of California. The federal government says it is an illegal narcotic, and very little would prevent President Trump or Attorney General Jeff Sessions from unleashing a wave of federal raids. Even with that ominous risk, investors, real estate brokers, experts in irrigation and chemical testing, and more all want in on the rush. They're scouting San Diego locations and trying to predict which little cities will let them put up storefronts or grow houses. Marijuana has been in a legal gray area for many years. The industry has thus evolved with one foot in legitimacy and one foot often in a murky world of illegality, but illegality subject to the whim of prosecutors. All the while, entrepreneurs who are also activists have propelled it forward, and one of them is James Sladek, the chairman of Humanity Holdings. Sladek has been having trouble with the law, 
Recently, a judge forced District Attorney Bonnie DeManis to return hundreds of thousands of dollars she had seized from him without pressing charges. His legal status, though, as you will hear, got much more complicated right when we sat down to talk. More on that later. Sladek was not always trying to pioneer the legal marijuana industry, though. Well, I've been an entrepreneur my entire career. I started my first you know, real company when I dropped out of Cal State Fullerton and started a little computer company with one of my professors. So uh, like many college students, I worked in the restaurant industry and that's when the IBM PC first came out. And I saw, wow, this tool would be great for restaurants because we always had trouble with inventory. So I I had a professor that knew how to do this little language called BASIC, and uh, we bought a little IBM PC for like $2,400, and he wrote this uh, inventory program, and I dropped out of college and started selling for, uh, our company's name was Rescom Enterprises. That would have been 1984. And you were, what were you studying at Cal State? Business. Yeah, so you had the bug already. Oh yeah, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't get out of college fast enough and start working. How did it do? It did good. We we uh, sold to some chains like uh, Brie Calendars, and and uh, we actually got acquired um, by a Canadian company uh, within like eighteen months. Really? Yeah. Did you make some money? Yeah, I made money, but not money, money. Just you know enough to live on. But they they hired me to go to work for them, so. I worked for them for a while and then, you know, kept going through a, a series of ventures. And what was your next venture? So my next one after that was a, a point of purchase sign business. That's when the lottery first came out and uh, started a company called Luma Graphics. And uh, we sold uh, those light boxes that said play lotto here. Oh. Uh, so I actually got a contract with the California lottery um to sell uh, light boxes uh, that would go up in the 7-Elevens and liquor stores and things like that. So another successful venture. Wow. How did you notice that was something you could do? Well, you know, in in entrepreneurial business, we say in niches, there are riches. So um, my whole career, it's always been a friend of a friend or hearing something. And uh, I knew this guy that had invented a patented technology to um, do kind of a neon sign, but with an electronic ballast. The problem with that was it had a big, what was called a core and coil set, which weighed, you know, it was like a boat anchor, but he had invented a little solid state ballast, which kind of changed the dynamics for the point of purchase advertising business. So we got a patent called thin illuminated light source apparatus and method. And, you know, I've always been fairly decent at selling. So the lottery was kind of new then. And I went up to Sacramento and pitched them and got a contract to uh, put in light boxes in thousands of 7-Elevens and liquor stores. This is the kind of thing I want to drill a little bit more. You went up to Sacramento. How do you even start a process like that? Did you even know that they were requesting something like that? Was there a bid or a request for proposals? What year is yeah, this? Yeah, that would have been 1986. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there was. There was a an RFP, but the lottery was new and they didn't really know what they wanted. They know that they wanted to promote and they knew that they had a big budget, but they were open to like hear stuff. And uh, our niche in that case was we had this patented um, design. And so 
I kind of entice them to do the spec um, around our product. And so we were the only ones that could meet the spec. And <laughs> the lottery guys liked that because they didn't want to have to d dig through like 20 proposals. They liked what we were doing. And so they kind of wrote an RFP that, you know, we were sort of, I guess, the only ones that could really meet. But uh, that was also my first uh, entrepreneurial disaster. Oh, no. Yes, because we got this contract and we were making thousands of light boxes. But I was a young entrepreneur and I got a little bit greedy. And I said, well, we're selling them all these light boxes. How are they going to put them in? And then they were like, oh, we're going to have a contract for installation. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I, I could do that. I could make as much money on the installation as we're making selling the light boxes. So I bid on that. Um, and I said, well, you know, I'll put out a couple trucks with my brother and my cousin and they'll drive around and putting in liquor stores. But I had no idea how to do mapping or routing. And, you know, this is pre-internet. You just had a map book and drove around the state. And if you haven't noticed, California is a really, really big state. Somewhat, yeah. And they wanted to pay a flat fee per store. And things like you would show up at the liquor store and the lottery rep was supposed to have everything all set. And you'd go up and they had no idea who you were. There was supposed to be power within six feet, but the nearest power was 30 feet in the back. <laughs> and it was a disaster. And, uh, so I wasn't able to perform on that contract and the lottery gave me no sympathy and they were like, Hey, if you're not big enough to do a job like this, then, you know, why did you, did you find yourself actually going to some of these stores to try to install? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Every, <laughs> everybody was going to stores. We were going to stores and, and in the hood and, uh, up at Lake Tahoe and in, you know, just really obscure corners of the state where there wasn't anything around, but there was a gas station or liquor store that sold lottery tickets. And we'd have a, a, a sheet with all the names on it and go to, you know, Ben's liquor in, in weed, California. And so you had literally agreed to put up, install these things in every place that sold the lottery in California? Well, in that time, there was only about 1,200 outlets. Okay. So still, it's it seemed like, you know, you could do, you know, we, we had rudimentary mapping. We thought that we could do, you know, 20 a day. Right. But, you know, we really could do about five a day. When did you realize you couldn't? I'd say maybe about three weeks into the exercise, when my poor brother was like out on the road and hadn't seen his family and still had, you know, a half a van full of light boxes and was like, you know, I can't do this. I, um, and you know, the, the lottery hadn't really done their part. You know, they were supposed to have it prepped and, and have confirmed and have the Budweiser sign out of the window and yeah. all of the things that were supposed to be done weren't done. Uh, so we went in kind of with bad, uh, start and, you know, Had they fronted a lot of money that made it possible, but it was just not a, not enough or. No, they didn't front. They would pay per, as you install. Oh no. Yeah. So, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't getting paid. I got, so paid. you couldn't really hire anyone because you didn't have capital to do that. Well, we, we had, we had had the money from selling them the sure. signs. So okay. they actually like transferred the signs from our warehouse to like the installation part of the contract. They sent a lottery rep down and he counted all of the boxes. I remember being up all night the night before putting boxes together and putting them away because that was how they were going to pay us. And I remember at that time, uh, 
Gray Davis was the controller mm-hmm. and later governor. And uh, the check came from the from the state of California with Gray Davis's signature. And that was a monumental date. Little did I know that, you know, uh, a year later we'd be out of business. For James, it was always feast or famine. The cycle would go on and on, hit and miss. I went to work for a buddy of mine's uh, mailing company. And through that, I had met people that had a, a small uh, printing and direct mail company where the founder had just passed away. And they uh, offered me a position and 25% of the company. And this is in Orange County still? Well, that company was in San Bernardino. Okay. Yeah. So I moved out to Redlands, uh, got married, and I was like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna just be a- going to be a worker. A gonna... worker. And, uh, and, and then, you know- the, the entrepreneurial bug, you know, doesn't really go away. And so you, wh- why'd you sell the company? Um, we got approached by a public company mm-hmm. um, out of Dallas called FYI Incorporated, and they were rolling up. This was now the late 90s. They were rolling up the um, industry. And so uh, they made us an offer we couldn't refuse. So at that point, you're glad you did have a little... Uh, stake in equity with the company and did you did you exit with some wealth at that point then millions it's a long process to go through a an acquisition like that so it probably took you know almost a year um the agreement to get acquired was probably six inches thick Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, there's all kinds of conditions and it's a a public company and they did a stock deal. And so, um, you know, about three times during that process, you're like, oh, it's not going to go through because, you know, there's always like some caveat or some condition Mm -hmm. or some addendum. And you're like, no, we can't do that. And you're like, okay. So um, that was a, a big lesson. And then that company wanted me to help them roll up the the industry. So I went to work in mergers and acquisitions and helped them to acquire more companies like my company. But when the deal closes, that's the moment you look and you own a bunch of shares with this new company that's taken over your old company, right? Yes, I can remember exactly 110,570 shares of FYI Incorporated. And uh, you knew what the price of that share was and, and you're like, you do the math and that's how much you have. You technically have because you can't sell the stock right. one half in six months, the other half in one year. But I'm very happy to say that that company did very well. And when the time the stock came off the so-called lockup, uh, it had gone up about 25%. So we've done the deal at about $19 a share. When it came off lockup, it was about $24 a share, and it went as high as $32 a share. If you're trying to do the math in your head, that's about $3.5 million in his name. This was another high moment. James is flying around the country in Armani suits, buying companies, rolling them up, as he said, until they wanted him to switch and start managing the businesses he had helped the company buy. That wasn't going to happen. He started a new company called Loud Energy. I had now, like many people, uh, wound up getting a divorce and, uh, you know, moved to the beach and lived the the high life and, you know, had a convertible Ferrari and a beach (laughs) house. And um, I had always kind of dabbled in the music business on the side. I have a uh, degree as a 
um, audio engineer. So I'd always dabbled in it, but there was, I'd never really found a way to make money. But then we had this um, opportunity with the internet business to start a company that helped unsigned bands get record deals. Mm. Okay. Uh, like with a independent producer or? That was actually our niche was we, producers are kind of like free agents mm -hmm. and they don't work unless they have a band to sign. So now the internet was a way for them to hear lots and lots of bands. So we went out to the producer community and we said, hey guys, um, we're going to give you a piece of the company. Uh, you just have to give us five hours a month of your time, screen these bands that are going to sign up for our service. And if there's somebody that you want to work with, we'll sign them to a demo deal. You produce it and then we'll shop it with your name attached to it, to the record labels, which were still hmm. in business at that time. And so we actually had um, 22,000 bands sign up for our service and we got about six bands record deals. Was Loud Energy a win or a, a fail? Well, it was a huge win in that we had the 22,000 bands. Yeah. We had a $35 million private placement that was yeah. going out to fund the company. That's um, where I had poured uh, a couple million dollars of my largesse from selling my company to that public company. So I had put in, you know, maybe two and a half million of my money into it. And, you know, my best friend's money and a bunch of other friends and family money. And uh, unfortunately, our private placement for 35 million was going out uh, to Wall Street um, on this date of September 30th, 2001. Oh. And, you know, a few weeks before that, something happened in this country, which was uh, pretty terrible. And it really... Um, killed uh, the stock market. And so, you know, we, unfortunately, uh, we had a major uh, New York investment bank. And I remember very well, uh, I, I did ask them, God forbid something happens and this private placement doesn't go through. I'm spending all the money because we, we had a business plan that we were going to 168 employees. Um, what, you know, what's going to happen? Cause I'm spending all my money, mm -hmm. uh, that we have raised. And they said, Oh, we're your guys. And they literally did the hand hold thing like mm -hmm. this and said, you just have to trust us. We believe in your business so much. You have to operate it and let us take care of the capital needs. So of course, when, uh, nine 11 hit, I was, boy, good. I was actually on my way to long beach airport to fly to New York on nine 11, uh, for meetings uh, regarding the, the, the placement. And then they, uh, when I called and said, good thing you guys are going to fund us within the firm because, you know, I know things yeah. are bad right now. And they, there literally is a pause on the phone. And then, oh, if you look at the contract on page four, paragraph six, where it says best efforts, and then I was like, oh no, I've just lost my company. And millions. Oh yeah. I'd lost, uh, you know. I lost my best friend. I, you know, cause he had put money in and blamed me and, uh, I'd lost about 80 to 90% of my net worth. So now I'm down to maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars liquid and wow. have, have nothing and need to go to work. And I had heard of a opportunity down here in San Diego and it was uh, for a spice and seasoning company from the food business. 
and uh, it was a little company doing about a million dollars in sales, and uh, they wanted you know somebody to come in and help grow the business. Did they give you some equity? I was fortunate again, and uh, well, I took. Um, I think I bought twenty five percent of the company for fifty grand of my reward uh, remaining two hundred, and um, so there were three other partners, and so the four of us. Um, there, this company was called the Great Spice Company. It was in San Marcos. We made the decision to get into the organic side of the business, and um, that was a leap of faith back in 2002, 2003. Um, but we went 100% organic, and then I got on my horse again because of necessity, and I went out and got uh, McCormick and Campbell's Soup and ConAgra and Unilever and Heinz Ketchup as customers. And uh, we took that company from a million in sales to about 13 million in sales. Once again, James was at another peak. When we come back, how James invented something that would characterize the marijuana industry in California forever. Hey, Kinsey here with a short sponsored interview brought to you by Downtown San Diego Partnership. Keith Jones is the managing principal and partner at Ace Parking, a company that's grown from a small San Diego family business into one of the nation's premier parking companies. So Keith, you take a lot of pride in being based here in San Diego. You know, as being a fourth-generation San Diegan, third-generation business owner, I'm grateful to be part of the fabric of the community. Uh, you know, we have over 2,300 different uh, employees and, and team members that we employ within the county of San Diego. And uh, I look at my job as being of service to both my team members and my employees and the customers that hire us and park with us. So I, I look at every day of how I can be a servant leader uh, for both my organization and both the city that I get to call home. And do you take customer service seriously? I've heard you've been known to answer client emails at 3 a.m. You know, I believe uh, strongly that uh, if you're going to be a privately uh, run organization that you take pride in and that uh, you live and breathe, then it's a 24-7 business. And so the type of emails or correspondence that I'm responding to are everything from a customer asking about, uh, you know, how do I engage with this type of parking facility in terms of making a reservation? Or uh, I was always taught by my grandfather, and I think this was a, a... a Navy thing that, hey, if no matter even if it's 6.30 on a Friday evening and a client calls or emails you, you need to respond that evening. It's not okay for it to wait to the next day or, or later because they're trusting you. They're trusting, um, they're trusting to work with you. And so that's just another uh, core value that, uh, that I believe is runs true and I think is, is part of that San Diego uh, mentality about both being a community mind base, but showing our our true might of being a uh, living on the international stage. So Keith, speaking of being community minded, what sort of social programs or issues is your company most interested in? 
Well, being from San Diego and uh, having a, a business at the size and scope of Ace Parking, uh, you know, I, I believe strongly that great corporations uh, make an impact in the communities they do business in. And so one of the things that touched uh, my family, as it's touched so many within not just the Ace Parking community, but but San Diego and the global community, is, is cancer. And so after an experience that my family had with cancer and working through that, uh, we at Ace Parking created an initiative that every October we actually turn our blue signs around town pink and uh, we call it our park for pink campaign and each October we take a, a good portion of our parking proceeds and then partner with various community organizations to both help uh, financially and and promote their good doing through our park for pink campaign so last year we connected with the leukemia lymphoma society LLS of San Diego and partnered there with both Scripps hospital the year before. Uh, in 2017, it looks like we're going to partner with uh, Pedal for the Cause, Padres Pedal for the Cause. And your office is close by. It's downtown here in San Diego, and you've always been located downtown. And obviously, parking lots are part of the urban design. So what do you think makes a vibrant, exciting downtown? One of the reasons that Ace Parking has called downtown San Diego its corporate headquarters for almost 70 years is that we believe strongly that Great cities, great counties, great uh, communities have strong, vibrant downtowns. And uh, in order to be part of a strong, vibrant downtown uh, and parlay that into a strong, vibrant business, you need to have boots on the ground and be part of that and activating that downtown. And so us being downtown and integrating in with the community with which our customers are, I think is a, gives us a strong understanding and advantage of what our customers and consumers want out of us. Uh, I believe great communities and great downtowns are activated. They find different ways to activate based upon the time of day, whether it be a Monday through Friday morning, more business ritual to an evening time of, uh, you know, a consumer coming down and enjoying different experiences, or whether they be in our market, you know, a, a consumer trade show and how the, sh how the downtown community shows. It's evident that we have a homeless epidemic going on. And so instead of turning a, my blind eye and saying, well, it's now it's time to uh, get my my, my team members and employees into a safer environment, let's move out of downtown. I'm actually saying, how can we double down? How can we be involved in this? And how can we help a neighbor helping neighbor and be part of a solution? And so while the community and everyone's talking about affordable housing solutions that is awesome and is needed, but the fact of the matter, if you're homeless and you're destitute, you don't even have money for affordable housing. And so how are we changing that conversation to say, how do we triage the situation so that we can get people off of the streets and into emergency shelters so you can have both that approach as well as the approach of affordable housing. And so uh, I believe of being a San Diego-based company and having the opportunity to be part of the community, then it's my responsibility to be part of a leader in the community and help understand and build solutions towards solving these problems together with the various factions that can have real-world impacts. The Downtown San Diego Partnership is a leading advocate for the economic vitality and growth of Downtown San Diego. The Downtown Partnership's many members are committed to creating a vital and vibrant urban center that benefits the entire San Diego region. Visit downtownsandiego.org for more information on its programs or call 619-234-0201 to learn about the many benefits of becoming a member.
Welcome back to I Made It in San Diego. I'm Scott Lewis. When we left James, he had just gotten back to a new high. He was helping pioneer the organic spices market. It would soon be time, though, to change again and leave the Great Spice Company. We anticipated a merger with the largest competitor, um, and that company was in Reno, and they owned the building, so that business was going to move to Reno. Uh, by this time, um, you know, well entranced here in, in San Diego, don't want to move to Reno. So the other partners bought me out. And you rebuilt some wealth. Rebuilt some wealth. That must have felt better. Uh, it was a relief. <laughs> it was a relief because I've been rich and I've been poor and rich is better. <laughs> okay. Have we gotten to marijuana yet? That's then. Now we are there. We have arrived at the marijuana door. The guy... Uh, that was our purchasing manager, was a, a cannabis patient, medical cannabis patient. And when this merger was going down, he was losing his job. He wasn't moving either. He's like, hey, you've started all these companies. I've got this idea. Can I take you to lunch? Uh, we went to lunch, and he had come up with the idea to sell packaging to cannabis dispensaries. Okay. And that's what started my time in the industry, potbottles.com. Okay, pot bottles. And so this is those those like those greenish tubes and, or. Yeah. So we started with just, you know, the pill bottle, but instead of push and turn, it said medical cannabis prop 215 SB420 compliant on the Uh lid. So um, really the innovation. So nobody had done that? Nope. Nope. We started it. You're the reason that all the medical marijuana is packaged that way. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. It didn't exist before. And the idea was just use that same sort of style of the squeeze bottle. Um, the pop top came slightly after that. And At first it was just the medical bottle. But just to kind of give it some professionalism. Yeah. I mean, people were still dispensing in baggies in mm-hmm. 2009. And so your customers were dispensaries across the state? Yeah, we um, delivered. So we were just geographically in Southern California. So we wound up in one year getting about 400 accounts and driving from the San Fernando Valley to Palm Springs. And then of course, down to the Mexican border, um, delivering bottles, bags, joint containers, hash containers, labels. We said everything but the medicine. Yeah. So you're kind of, you were kind of in that spot that a lot of investors these days want to be in where they can invest and get something going where they don't actually have to touch the stuff. Yeah. I, I didn't know that, you know, I was on a thesis of ancillary business, not touching the plant. So I thought that that was going to be safer, uh-huh. but it wasn't. I still got evicted, still had my bank account shut down. And uh, then I almost went out of business because the U.S. Customs Service seized my bottles at the port of Long Beach in a 40-foot shipping container and said, this is drug paraphernalia and you can't import it. This was, you were getting manufactured in Asia? Yeah, yeah, it was all from China. And they didn't have any marijuana in them, they were just the the style you had designed to hold marijuana. Yeah, it just was exactly the same as a pill bottle, but it said medical cannabis on the lid, and according to the customs, that made it drug paraphernalia. Where are you operating right now? We were in San Marcos. San Marcos, and the company was importing these things, distributing them around the country or around the state. And um, what happened, what year did the trouble start? That was 2011. And you were an actual for-profit business serving oh, yeah. these. Yeah. Okay. Island Medical Packaging. And you were partners with this person that the had developed that, it. The, the guy had been my purchasing agent. Yep. And were you the majority partner or him? 
Um, he was a majority partner because I, I just had invested sure. $50,000 to buy a container of bottles. And so we were 60, 40. <laughs> okay. And so, uh, when did you know that, when was the like real break with that business? Did you get a customer or some network that bought your stuff? Yes. Um, we, uh, somehow the a guy, they were big dispensary groups, uh, in those days. And there was one uh, giant dispensary in downtown LA called Downtown Patient Group. And they probably used 50 cases of bottles a week. And the guy that controlled that had about 10 other dispensaries. And he liked me and gave me his account. And, you know, that was like a million dollars worth of business. And so the there was nothing actually like certified about the bottles you just it was just a way to professionalize the look and sort of structure it right well that's a great question because uh that's absolutely um what happened to that business because you know we kind of started it but then people were like wait a minute i can get a, ca- uh, a yeah. container of bottles from china and instead of charging 39 dollars a case i'll charge 37 or 35 so what did you do well, I sold the, the bottle business to a guy in Orange County that um, wanted to be the king of bottles. He wanted to control the packaging business in the United States, and uh, he has has done that. Now he is the biggest packaging Who's that? supplier. His name's David Weidenbach. It's called Collective Supply, mm-hmm. and they supply packaging in five or six states. Then James pioneered something bigger for the industry. He adapted the e-cigarette for marijuana use. You know, obviously we knew about e-cigarettes, right? Sure. They, were, they weren't proliferating, but they were still quite out there. Sure. And so um, I had a, a partnership with a guy in Colorado, and he had bought in some of the first, um, they were called Atmos, they were e-cigarette uh, blanks. And we just started experimenting with squirting uh, CO2 extracted cannabis oil. And there I remember buying 50 grams of oil and being in my back of my warehouse trying to figure out how to make this work. So explain the difference between extraction and refining. Or isn't there something? Yeah, so the extraction is actually taking uh, the cannabis and extracting the essential oils from it. And there's a variety of ways to do that. You it's know. the kind of thing that happens when you make brownies and you boil it or something. Well, when you make brownies, um, you know, you tend to make cannabis butter. Yeah. And so you're going to, you know, make the oil, put it into butter and then put it into your brownie. But, you know, these are professional machines that um, come from the food industry because uh, that's how they take out the caffeine from coffee okay. uh, would be CO2 extraction. So those companies started being like, hmm, there might be a new market here for us. And they started uh, very quietly uh, selling machines into this space that allowed for the commercialization of cannabis oil. And you're doing this in San Diego? We didn't extract anything in San Diego ever because it was still, you know, a little bit of a political hot potato. Mm-hmm. But um, up in Northern California in the Emerald Triangle, um, my partner had a grow up there. And so we had a couple machines out there in uh, Mendocino. So County. describe that for a second, because we still live in a version of this, but this weird state where it's legal that there, the, the state of California said that p- patients who have doctor recommendations for this use can get it. But then there's this whole like spectrum of legality after that, 
we're providing that or selling that is 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 iffy, right? And so at that point, how are you making the decision about whether to invest or work on it? And and also talk about your feelings then about needing to become an activist for more clarity. Well, um, yeah, I had already got the activism bug before that back in the bottle business. I had, was going to dispensaries myself and delivering. Mm-hmm. So I started seeing, I'd probably been in maybe 300 dispensaries myself. So, you know, I was seeing patients on a daily basis driving around in my in my Sprinter van uh, and delivering packaging. So it was actually a, a, a dispensary down here in San Diego. I had seen this elderly couple, a couple of times in there and they had the old Buick Park Avenue and mm-hmm. the guy got out and he was kind of frail and he would get the walker out and his wife and 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 she would hobble over to the door and I was like what the heck is this so I I went up to the guy and I said you know sir I'm sorry to bother you I said could you you know tell me you know what the, you know what you're doing here and he says well he says my my wife and I live in this uh, old folks home like around the corner here and my wife has osteoarthritis really bad and somebody told us, hey, we should try this pot cookie. And I said, well, how's that working? And she, he's, oh, it's great. He says, uh, he says, she takes a half a cookie and for four or five hours, she's the girl I knew 30 years ago. She's not in pain. She wants to eat something. She even tells a joke. And I was like, holy crap. I went there two weeks later, that dispensary had been closed down. It was, the, it was just boarded up. And, you know, they didn't know about weed maps. I could see them sitting at the old folks' home. And so I was like, okay, now the government is saying to this elderly couple that is getting relief uh, from this that they can't have it anymore. And I was like, you know, they're not going to be able to fight. I said, I'm, I'm, you know, got some money and some gray hair. I'm going to start fighting for um, people to have access to this medicine. Mm. And. Again, though, that you're still now you're trying to build this business, MedWest. You've come up with this, you know, new product kind of, and and again, you'd be marketing it to these medical facilities, but you're a for profit still, right? Yeah. Well, um, so we had a for for profit corporation that did um, management and bought inventory, but the sales were through our our nonprofit mutual benefit corporation right. because, um, you know, as by this time, I had um, helped found the National Cannabis Industry Association and and uh, was working with some of the leading attorneys like San Diego's Lance Rogers um, here to um, to be compliant with the laws. So we yeah. you know used our structure to have a um, nonprofit corporation. Okay, so you're in San Diego. You're building this business. Did now you st- you're actually this is your first time touching the the plant and the the product and getting it out to people. Yes. Were you scared? Absolutely. You know, I had gone out of the frying pan into the fire, so yeah. to speak. And, um, but you know, I believed in what we were doing. I believed that, you know, what we did was, was legal and was helping people. And we started, you know, making other products, you know, soft gel pills and topicals. And, um, uh, you know, we started getting this, um, antidotal uh, reports back from people like, Oh my God, I, I've had so much pain or I, this is the best night's sleep I've had in 10 years and things like that. So I was like, okay, this is working. And, you know, and we were engaged with the political process. You know, we had started um, lobbying the San Diego city council and, and the state uh, assembly and uh, even nationally 
um, to to get some clarity on on the laws and to uh, wind up with you know where we are now. You know, we we rode the wave and and got big. We you know we're multi million dollar company with thirty five employees and. On the fateful day of January 28th, 2016, um, the San Diego Joint Narcotics Task Force broke down my door. It's been, you know, on the videos are on YouTube and um, uh, put us out of business. How did you find out it was happening? Well, I was at a breakfast meeting, which thank God, because I usually w- would have been there at 730. Um, and uh, I got a call from one of the employees that, tried to go to work and saw, you know, a million police cars and a helicopter and said, we're being raided. Now describe, you have a business, you have a permit to have a, uh, everything you have there. Yeah. Uh, and you were, you had talked to the city or whomever that, and told them what you were doing there. This was all open. Sure. Yeah. We had, a um, you know, the business license here is called the BTC business tax certificate. And once, uh, that opened, um, for, uh, marijuana infused products. Uh, we were the second person in line at the business licensing office, uh, applied for our use, which was, uh, to m- manufacture the products there and, you know, put all of that on the application, the business licensing, uh, building and planning had walked through our, our business police had been in there. Everyone, you know, we were, uh, quite open, you know, we were a partner in the building Our uh, $2.2 million facility there where we employed people, um, as the, um, district attorney likes to put everything in the most negative way. So they put a nondescript warehouse, Mm -hmm. uh, making hash oil, you know, because it's a lot easier to say hash oil because it sounds so druggy instead of, you know, medical cannabis concentrate, which is just a form that you can use to make variety. Of well, it products. also it also ties you to some of those folks that were blowing up hotel rooms and stuff, right? Yeah, and apartment buildings and and what have you with the extraction of butane. So we never extracted there. We never had any equipment to extract. We never had any cannabis uh, flower there, which you would need to extract. So uh, we didn't have any of the equipment or anything. What were you doing? Just repackaging it? Kind yeah. Of? So we, um, the state of California calls it distillation and mm-hmm. it basically is like a cleaning. So the stuff comes out of the machine and it's almost like tar like because it's, uh, you know, got all the plant uh, fats and waxes and you distill that out with uh, ethyl alcohol and um, then that leaves you just the pure cannabis oil that then we make in various products. How is it coming into that that facility? Like, is it is there just a truck that shows up with this stuff? Well, uh, luckily enough, cannabis oil to do you know a million cartridges, you know, would fit in a you know in a, in a box. It's okay. it's it's uh, you know it would come down in a little truck and um, yeah, because the the concentrate you know. A, a thousand grams of concentrate is like one Ziploc bag. It's a very valuable box. It it would be uh, it would be pricey as um, the raid you know seized over a million dollars worth of product and cash. Yes, because the industry is still has a hard time getting banking. We unfortunately had three hundred twenty five thousand in cash. The accusation though was not about federal narcotics law. It was a health and safety code violation. The district attorney seized his assets, but didn't file charges, at least not yet. They took about um, 
200,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, the business, they took 325,000 in cash and about a million two in product. James has kids whose college accounts were also affected, but his son had a much different experience with drugs. What happened? Uh, yeah, when my son passed, yeah, he um, was involved with drugs and snuck out of rehab. He was one of these, uh, this opioid thing with the fentanyl mm-hmm. where they tell this story. He was one of those victims that uh, got the heroin that had fentanyl in it and overdosed and died. Insys is the company that makes fentanyl. It's ironically one of the biggest investors in efforts to keep marijuana illegal. Sladek has a lot of feelings about this. Is, Is drug abuse good? Of course not. But what is it? It's a public health crisis. It's not. Um, uh, it's not. Can, it's not a law enforcement crisis. My son, who was in and out of jail due to his use of heroin, um, had a drug problem. But he got involved with the criminal justice system, and ultimately, you know, sending an 18-year-old white boy from Orange County to state prison, where his roommate is a triple murderer, um, you know, gave him so much PTSD that you know he wound up in this violent cycle of addiction which ended in his life his life ending and the raid marked another low but the entrepreneurial instinct kicked in once again because uh, medwest got you know shut down and taken out of business i had to pivot and and get a new business going and um you know with cannabis being the fastest growing industry in the united states and um i guess Marijuana Business Magazine said I was an industry pioneer. I think that just means I have a ton of gray hair. <laughs> um, but, you know, I definitely am well connected through the industry at this point. And so um, we started this company um, called Humanity Holdings, and we um, do nootropics, which are brain supplements mixed with um, microdoses of CBD and THC. And it's been a revelation. Why? Well, it's really um, helping uh, a lot of people. Um, our first product is um, called Serenity. It's an anxiolytic and anti-anxiety uh, medication. And our country, if you haven't noticed, is very stressed out. This is where I thought life just went on for James, but it didn't. I called him so he could give me an update. Well, um, four days after I got the check from the district attorney or the checks from the district attorney's office for our family's money back plus interest, I got a call um, from the Union Tribune uh, reporter, Jeff McDonald, and he said, do you have any comment about being charged with 12 felonies? And I said, excuse me? And he said, oh, my God, you don't know. And I'm like, uh, no, I did not. He goes, I'm so sorry. He said, the district attorney's office has put out a press release about charging you four of your employees and your attorney with a variety of felonies, manufacturing controlled substance, money laundering, um, conspiracy, and uh, you know various uh, iterations of those things all uh, around you know, our, our business. Uh, that we had. So um, they didn't arrest me. They uh, let me uh, self-report, as it were, where uh, I was uh, processed, fingerprinted, DNA'd, and photographed at the men's central jail. And then um, 
the battle uh, begins. James is not being charged for marijuana or drug crimes necessarily. Again, this is about health and safety codes. It's an allegation that he committed a crime while manufacturing a controlled substance. But more shocking in a way were the charges directed at his attorney, Jessica Elfresh. They alleged that she knew about his criminal acts and conspired with him. As far as we can tell, it's fairly, if not entirely, unprecedented to charge the attorney. Um, you know, their allegations were that she engaged with me in a criminal conspiracy to hide the fact that we were uh, a cannabis manufacturing company when the city uh, business licensing and building and planning did a walkthrough uh, in May of 2015. Um, they cite an email that she wrote to me afterwards uh, where she used the phrase something like, I didn't flirt with the inspector because I don't think it would work. And, and, uh, and so they took this as that we were hiding the fact, even though, you know, we had a 14,000 square foot building that was, you know, website, chock-a-block with, you know, this uh, cannabis vape pen type stuff. Um, so they charged her with a number of things, including destruction of evidence, because I guess uh, when they served the search warrant on her home, her mom took her iPad, not Jessica's, my attorney's iPad, but the mom's iPad and like put it in a pail of water because uh, you know, she didn't want the cops to get her iPad. So they didn't know whose iPad that was. So they charged Jessica with an additional charge of destruction of evidence. Um, so her mom feels horrible. But um, so they seized um, all of her files, uh, all of her computers at her home in her office and uh, feel like they have carte blanche to search all those. So we had a motion hearing on that. She's represented by the esteemed San Diego criminal defense attorney, Gene Iredale. This has, as you might imagine, raised concerns in the legal community as prosecutors push to review all of Jessica Elfresh's clients' emails, not just James Sladek's. He told me he has lost almost all his consulting clients. And once again, he's hit bottom. He's raising money on Indiegogo for legal bills. Thanks for listening to I Made It in San Diego. I wrote the show, Kinsey Moreland edited it, and Adam Greenfield mastered and mixed it. Visit voiceofsandiego.org slash podcast to learn more about our weekly Voice of San Diego political affairs show, our Good Schools for All Education podcast, the Kept Faith sports podcast, and all the shows in the VOSD podcast network. If you liked the show, go to voiceofsandiego.org and click the donate button. Or if you'd like to sponsor it, contact Aaron Zlotnick at Aaron at voiceofsandiego.org. That's Aaron at vosd.org.